Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Today, I'm so excited to have Jamie Schler. This is a woman who was born and raised here in the U.S. of A., but had a circuitous journey. That's a great word, isn't it? Circuitous journey. And uh, besides being an Ivy League graduate and an accomplished person in many areas from art history to culinary arts, she ended up living in France and owns a hotel and has written at least one cookbook and another's on the way. And she is just a fascinating human being. We've been friends for a while thanks to Twitter. And so if you like food or France or publishing or politics or a couple of Jews talking to each other, you're going to like this episode. You know what else you're going to like? Abe's muffins. They're vegan. They are uh, no allergy uh, interactions. Your kids are going to love them. They come in a whole lot of different flavors. My favorite is chocolate chip. But if you're a lemon poppy seed person, I won't hold that against you. Uh, in any event, why don't we, uh, also, by the way, if you want to talk to me about anything, uh, why don't you check in at isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a message or ask me more about Abe's Muffins and ask how long are the apple cider ones going to be around or the pumpkin ones, are they just for the fall? Are these going to last? Is there going to be cornbread forever? Who knows? Might be able to help you. We'll see. In any event, here's my conversation with the great Jamie Schmerz. Jamie Schler, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. So excited to have you. So excited to talk to you because I actually talked to you for like an hour and a half and didn't record it before. <laughs> so uh, it, it was lovely to get to know you more back then, but we're going to, yeah. we're really recording now. Uh, so it's clear that as a podcaster, I'm an excellent lawyer. But uh, not always the best technical person. Well, I have to say, someone who may, I mean, I've been interviewed for other podcasts before, but I'm, I'm always nervous, really, really nervous, and I'm kind of very self-conscious about talking about myself. And the fact that we've already talked together and done a pre-podcast hour and a half, I feel it was, it was yeah, kind of fate that it didn't record. So now I'm really just comfortable. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad. Um, so right away, I'm just going to tell people that you and I have known each other, I don't know how long, and only really through Twitter. Um, yeah. because, but it became clear to me based on our other interview and our other conversations, and while you're certainly more attractive than I am, I feel there is a slight reason. I swear to God, I think we're related. I think you, we're related, yeah. I, I, you look like one of my cousins, actually. And let's face it, I mean... Most people who have a European Jewish heritage, they're probably mm -hmm. related at this point. Those that survived yeah. all the craziness from previous centuries and who made it here. Um, for instance, I did 23andMe and found out I am 99.4% Ashkenazi Jew. 
There's absolutely no surprises Surprise. in my background. Yes, <laughs> not at all. I am the gefilte fish of 23andMe. <laughs> um, although I eat anything and everything. Sorry, Grandma, wherever you are. There are sometimes when I eat things when I just know that she's turning the other way. She doesn't want to see me eating prosciutto or whatever it is. Oh my God, I, I'm, the sa- I'm exactly the same. How, like how can you eating this? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But like, you know, pork products, you know, it's not my fault. Pigs are so tasty. It's just not my fault. It's not my fault. I live in France. I lived in Italy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, if you go it's to just Italy, there. If you go to Italy and you don't drink wine and don't eat pork, why are you in Italy? I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Well, they do have some really good other stuff, but still. Really. You could actually in Italy, you could be a vegetarian. You really could be between the cheeses and other products. Well, when we lived there, we lived in Milan for seven years. And I tell you the, the, at least when we lived there, which was in the eighties, every fruit and vegetable, except Florida grapefruit, which come came from where I grew up and other citrus that came from Spain, every single thing on the market was Italian. So it's all, it's all, um, seasonal local nothing is out of season and that's why it's so good and people in europe shop much more frequently they don't store stuff it's not canned it's not frozen you go to the market Mm. you buy some stuff and you're going to cook it that day or the next day and that's how we live i'm spoiled um holly and i live this way in brooklyn i have a couple of local places i walk to Mm-hmm. We do get a butcher delivery once a week. Something's going in the freezer. But for the most part, we buy stuff and make it pretty frequently. But it's good that you mentioned Florida citrus and where you grew up. So I know things now that I didn't know, but my listeners won't know. So let's go back in time. Um, <laughs> your parents, of course, are New York Jewish background. Brooklyn, yeah. correct? My dad's Brooklyn. My mom is Albany. Okay, now Albany, for those who don't know, is actually in New York, it's upstate. And it is for some reason, the capital of New York State, even though most New York City people would think New York is the capital of New York and of the universe. Uh, And I live in Brooklyn, which we consider like right next to the capital. But um, and having said- Except if if you knew my mom's family in Albany, you would realize that that's the center of the universe. And why, why do you say that? <clears throat> They're just a formidable group of people. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great word. Um, how did they end up there? Do you know? Or were they always I, there? I don't know. I would actually have to go back and look at my genealogy stuff. I, I don't remember how they got there. But there was a huge Jewish community. I mean, people like um, Kirk Douglas and Peter Falk. I mean, these are people part of the Albany Jewish community. There was a huge, their families, there was a big Jewish community. They all knew each other. I didn't know that. But what I love, by the way, is you mentioned two uh, famous Jewish people who most people don't know are Jewish, especially Kirk Douglas. When I was younger, uh, we played a little game called Jew, Not a Jew, where you would watch television. And I think every (laughs) Jewish family does this. And I hear Canadians have a very smaller version of this game where when someone's on TV and you know they're Jewish, usually it's the mom in the room will say this, did you know they're Jewish is the thing mm-hmm. that gets said. 
Canadians say this, but there's, you know, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Did you know they're from Canada? But for, you know, Juice Kirk Douglas is a big one. Obviously, Tony Curtis, those kind of yeah. people. Um, so I, I spent four years near Albany and Schenectady because my undergrad is Union College. And this is part of our conversation that we had before about how you and I have basically followed each other all over the United States in some way or other. My mom is yeah. in Florida, but not where you grew up. Uh, so you were actually born in Virginia? Or I was born in Virginia. My, yeah, because my dad worked for what was NASA before it was NASA, which was based in Newport News, Virginia, at, at or near the Navy base, I guess. Um, NACA. I should have looked it up since it's, oh. I used to know what it stands for. <laughs> I do not expect you to do homework. It wasn't for me. aerospace, it was aeronautics. Yeah. And so when they created the manned space flight program, he became one of the design engineers. And when they opened up Cape Canaveral, NASA and Cape Canaveral, he moved down there in the early 60s. And so we moved to, I was very tiny in the early 60s. I wasn't born in the early 60s. I'm much younger than that. Um, but we moved to Florida. So we grew up uh, right yeah, south of Cocoa Beach. So you, yeah. I'm not asking you your age, but I was born in 61. And I'll just leave it out there. Um, you, so I know your dad had an affiliation with Grumman. Those are the people that made the lunar module that landed on the moon. And they also made a lot of weapons, you know, a lot of planes for World War II. They made the F-14 Tomcat, which is a naval attack fighter, that, you know, in Top Gun and is used a lot. And I think it's still used by some of the countries that we sell them to. Uh, so Grumman, also very close to where I grew up on Long Island. So mm -hmm. again, another interesting affiliation. Um, and we talked about before, but, you know, Nowadays, people think of Miami as a lot of older Jewish people, maybe also Boca Raton and that kind of area. But back then, when you were growing up, you were kind of, there was a little enclave of Jewish families, but it wasn't a big Jewish experience down there, right? Well, we weren't anywhere near Miami. I mean, Miami was five, six-hour drive south. Right, um, that's a good point. Yeah. No, yeah, we know it was not a real big Jewish community, but we had a Jewish community through the synagogue, which pulled in families from several different small cities in that area. And we were a very close-knit community. My parents were two of the couple, uh, one of the couples that basically ran the place. So, yeah, my mom, my mom was, took care of the Sunday school. My dad, she was involved with sisterhood. My dad was brotherhood. My dad ran Thursday night bingo, which he baked for Every, religiously, no pun intended, he baked religiously every Thursday, I think it was Thursday, would make big sheet cakes. And so he could bring cakes to bingo Thursday night that he ran. That's incredible. Did you start your love of baking then? I must have. I started my love of baking because I love to eat. But I used to, my mom was a terrible cook, but my dad was, and she hated to cook. It, it, it wasn't even that she wasn't a good cook. She always let us know that she really hated cooking and she did it because she was obliged to do it until we were about um, in I like that year. She, I like that she let you know. 
<laughs> she let us know. Dinner's ready went... under protest. <laughs> well, it kind of evolved over the years where it was like we would get, you know, well, this is, you know, camp soup night and this is, yay, Thursday nights are TV dinner nights, yay. And so little by little, she would kind of, you know, and she abdicated responsibility. She abdicated, but we were always responsible for our own breakfasts and our own lunches as soon as we were tall enough to reach the counter and open the fridge on our own, basically. And dinners were, you know, six o'clock with Walter Cronkite every night. But in the 70s, I remember her gathering us around. It must have been at the dinner table. And she said, okay, you guys are good. You guys are good on your own. I'm done. I'm not cooking anymore. <laughs> This sounds so much like but, my upbringing. <laughs> well, my mom was a teacher and she worked every day. And I remember making my own lunch, putting it in a paper bag. Yep. Um, she did make dinner, but I got to tell you, it wasn't anything that was super exciting to be involved in. And after my mom <laughs> wrecked uh, laundry once where she put like a red shirt in with all my underwear and hot, and then I had to go to gym class with pink underwear, I started doing my own laundry. And so I have, again, my mom, I love her, and she was a great teacher. Uh, and she taught me to do things for myself, uh, sometimes unintentionally, obviously. Uh, but very, again, very similar experience. But I never, mm -hmm. I never got the bug to cook. I just got the bug once I started eating good food. I was like, I need to pay for this. Well, or marry into this. <laughs> well, I don't think that we ever th thought about good food. Well, you know, in the that the whole um, silver. I guess by the seventies or eighties, when we would go up to New York, suddenly I realized what was good food. My aunt made good food. It tasted good, and I'm like, this is what this is supposed to taste like. <laughs> but. My so when we were growing up, we basically ate, not, didn't eat to survive, but we ate, um, I personally made food, not to cook, but to, I love to eat. I was, a, I ate all the time. I still eat from morning to night. I eat all the time. And it's, to me, it was more like, let's combine these flavors and see what happens. Let's combine these textures to see what happens. So it was basically just, you know, junk from the refrigerator, but it was all kinds of interesting combinations of junk. Well, I think um, it, it, it's interesting to me because as we'll talk about as we get there, you also have a love and appreciation for art. And I see yeah. how you could, I think of everything as art. Um, certainly fashion, well, food is related to art. In my I worked in fashion too. So I worked in fashion too. But I get to get back to my dad. My dad was a baker and he did some things for, with boxed mixes, but some things he made from scratch, like shoe pastry on, you know, to make, to make a puff, uh, cream puffs. Wow. Um, and and for those of you it, who don't know what shoe pastry is, it is that kind of uh, pastry. When you think of cream puffs, that shell or eclairs, yeah. that is yeah, shoe. That's and what it, it is. Right. It's spelled yeah. C-H-O-U-X. Um, mm -hmm. You don't pronounce the X because in France, they throw in as many letters so that you don't pronounce them. I don't know what's up with you French people. You make life very hard and I probably will repeat, repeat that upset, but please. You know, I, I have no problem with that when I speak French, but the one thing I will never, ever, ever not pronounce is the F at the end of eggs in French, les oeufs. 
but uh -huh. I oh, I have to don't want uh, I, I have to pronounce the oof because the f because if not it's just an uh. <laughs> I have a terrible I joke. Can I tell you a terrible <laughs> joke? This tell actually, a terrible joke. This was on the West Wing, uh, which is my favorite TV show of all time. And Margaret, who is Leo's secretary, tells him this terrible joke. How come French people only have one egg for breakfast? And you know, you're nodding. All right, but I'll tell my audience. No, I know it because my friend Marissa Rothkopf told me this. <laughs> joke, so. Because in French. And I did laugh. Thank you. <laughs> They only have one because in French, one egg is an oof. I know, and people, you can pause this if you're laughing hysterically. Keep driving, don't go off the road. Okay, sorry. I have subjected you. There will, when we meet in person, terrible jokes will happen, and my wife will pull me aside or just, you know, be prepared. All right, I'm sorry, please. Go no, on. I was just saying that my bake because everybody knows I'm a baker who knows me, and it's because of my dad because he would do it with this engineer's precision and concentration. Yes, because that... baking is chemistry exactly. more than any other food creation. When I watch the Great British Baking Show, and I don't know if you do, but it, it's actually more interesting in there because they use the metric system. So mm -hmm. I assume that we're precise in non-metric kitchens. But to watch them measure out different types of flour and different types of sugars, um, they are doing science there as well mm -hmm. as baking. It's a bit, and, and as you know better than I do for sure, you use just a little too much of a protein or a little too much of a sugar or these chemical compounds have consequences when you use them. Something won't rise or something will rise too much or the consistency will be strange. I, French bakers have been doing expert chemistry for centuries, and you are in that proud tradition. So I think that's really cool that your dad was a scientist or a baker. Those are not that dissimilar, right? True, true. And it was fascinating to watch him. It just mesmerized me to just sit and watch him. And then I got to eat what he made, so that was good too. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. In chemistry, in high school, we were encouraged not to put anything in our mouths because uh, it probably kill us. Um, but uh, luckily, when you're baking, even if it's not that great, it still most likely won't kill you. <laughs> well, a lot of people complain. That, a lot of people don't complain. A lot of people say who try and make my who. What am I? A lot of people who make my recipes tell, say, well, it didn't come out very pretty. I'm like, it doesn't matter if it comes out pretty. Does it taste good? That's what you can, Can't you always make it pretty? Throw some slices of something on top. Do yeah. a little, I mean. Yeah. I, ganache, chocolate ganache. Yeah, Just drizzle it all over with chocolate <laughs> ganache and you're okay. By the way, if you've learned nothing else from this podcast <laughs> to now, not just this episode, but the whole podcast ever, put some ganache on it. I think that's good for marital relations. That's good for legal <laughs> papers, whatever. Put some ganache on it. I love it. There you go. Um, I'm going to go back in time. You uh, grow up in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you, have a, you had a brother and a sister growing up? I had, two, I had two brothers and a sister. And they went to various fine uh, institutions of higher learning Right. My then, older brother and sister, yeah. Where did they end up going? 
My sister went to Brown and um, my brother went to Wesleyan. Okay, for people who don't know, Brown in Rhode Island is one of the Ivy League schools. Uh, it's probably known as the hippiest. Uh, John Jr. Kennedy uh, went there and it's probably the Ivy League school with the most mushrooms or marijuana. It's just a guess. If you went to Brown, <laughs> you know it's true. Don't write me or write me to confirm it. I know plenty of people went to Brown. They turned out okay, but they have a lot of Grateful Dead records. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, we are, some of us are familiar with Wesley. In any event, you started out, you were told, look, we don't have a ton of money left. I just know this from our other... And so you were going to be sent to a, let's call it a less prestigious school in Florida? Right. They told me I had to stay in, in Florida and go to a state school. And like I told you last time, if they had just let me be and let me choose a school, I would have probably stayed in Florida because I was um, not the most self-confident person. And I don't think I would have like picked up and gone to the other side of the country by myself. So I would have stayed, but because they said you have to stay in Florida, it kind of caused me problems, but I ended up at, I went to USF in Tampa and I will say something about USF, even though I transferred out two years later and I will tell you why, is that I probably should have stayed there because I got I was in the psychology department and I, if I'd stayed in Florida at USF, they had a fantastic psychology department. I probably would have stayed through and got my PhD, but I didn't. I'm glad Two you years didn't. Ago. I yeah. doubt that yeah. I would have ever met you. Right. I and, wouldn't be here today. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of we are supposed to have what we have and we like yeah. having what we have, even when we tell we, ourselves that we don't, but that's, but what I like is you ended up, going to the University of Pennsylvania, in, which is right. in Philadelphia, and is also only, Ivy League school. Yeah, right. Only because, again, I am somebody who knows absolutely nothing about anything until it's like shoved in front of my face. So I, the year my sister and brother, my sister was graduating from medical school, and my brother was graduating from undergraduate the same year. And so I called up my parents and said, well, they're both graduating, so it's my turn. And they said, no, you're staying in Florida. And I said, no, I'm not. And I um, complained to my cousin who was at Penn, and he sent me an application, and I filled it out, and I sent it in and um, dropped out of USF and gave my spot in the apartment I was living in to somebody else. And I kind of basically sat by the mailbox with my suitcases until I got luckily an acceptance letter to Penn and, uh, and I went, but that's not the first, that's the first time, but not the last time I did that kind of thing. Um, so I went to Penn and I got into the psychology department and then some, uh, you asked, I don't even remember how I got into art history, but I ended up going into the art history department. And I remember going to see my advisor in the psychology department and saying, you know, all of these other credits in psychology that I didn't, I wanted to avoid statistics. I'd already taken statistics in Florida and um, didn't want to do it again. So I went and I said, I don't really need to take these again. Can I replace them with art history courses? Because anyway, I'm interested in the psychology behind art, you know, artists, psychology. And, sure. and he said, what a good idea. Okay. 
<laughs> I waived all of my all of my remaining psychology credits so I could take art history classes. So that's what I did. Well, I, I love that again, you and I similarities. I spent eight years living in Philly, uh, and where I lived for I guess seven of those years was very close to the University of Pennsylvania. I lived in Overbrook. Um, and I worked in downtown Philly and I went by that school a zillion times. Mm -hmm. um, I also love that you and I talked about this. Uh, there's a lot of history of mental health problems with the artists that you particularly like. Um, mm -hmm. Well, and some that have nothing to do with the artists you like. I don't think you talked about Van Gogh at all, but clearly there was a significant mental health problem there. Um, but you talked about Rothko with me. Um, for well, what what I what I started studying, which I still I still love, is the early ex, what I call expressionists, the Northern Renaissance, um, people like Bosch, uh, Hieronymus Bosch, and uh, Northern Renaissance is my thing. It's my passion from Chronic to Bosch to Van Eyck. And just later when I took uh, an American art class, American art history class, I discovered the American Expressionists, Rothko and Pollock, and, and then a little further later into the, into the 60s, which I love too, Warhol and, and Jasper Johns and all of those people, because it was all kind of, all the same kind of, kind of a continuation of experimental, right. experimental art well, and all of that fascinates me yeah well you know i took a lot of art history myself but um and i love Liechtenstein as well with the pop art people sure yeah. um i i find that um i was listening once to an interview with dennis hopper who we all know is a famous actor but he was an art collector as mm -hmm. a young man he became friends with vincent price and vincent mm -hmm. price another famous actor turned him on to art and collecting art. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Dennis Hopper talked about the, uh, the, when he saw Jackson Pollock and some of those other guys, he anticipated what he called a return to representational art. He was like, these guys have gone kind of as far as they can go with this abstract expressionism. And we're going to return to something, but I don't know how it's going to show up. And when he saw Warhol, he was like, Aha. Uh -huh. And he mm. just like, he bought up, <laughs> he just bought up stuff, oh, wow. um, which is very interesting to me because he, he, he's one of those guys who as both an artist and as a collector of other people's art understood that art and commerce need to have a kind of marriage that supports them both. Um, it's a very fine line. And that's a whole other conversation to be sure. Oh, that's a whole other conversation because I was working in an art gallery. I was working for two art dealers in the 80s in New York when the whole Mary Boone and Leo Castelli and all of that and that that whole art scene and, and commerce and marketing and stuff kind of collided. And um, I want to talk about that. It's one reason I left. No, it's very controversial because I have very controversial opinions about well, everything that was going on in the art art world uh, in the eighties. If people agree or disagree with your opinion, <laughs> it's gonna it's a podcast. 
no one, you know, no one's going to sue you over your opinion here. And in fact, it, they might actually listen to me for a change if you have to say something interesting. So when I lived in New York City during law school, which was from 1983 to like 1987, um, before I moved to Philly, um, Warhol was still very popular. And of course, Basquiat was mm -hmm. becoming popular. And there were literally signs with the two of them having a famous collaboration and, and such. Were you involved? Did you see that scene in any way during that time? Not really. I mean, I, I saw what was going on with um, the art galleries and how these, no, it was a little bit, it was more the whole marketing thing of the big question with a lot of us was are art dealers now creating creating artists or are they discovering artists and then bringing them to the public and the public is saying you know i mean how do I even this reminds me, this? I'll explain it because I think I get it and tell me if I'm right. Yeah. In the 60s, um, the record industry was discovering cool pop groups. Um, mm. Before the Beatles and people like them came on the scene, there were popular singers and there were songwriters who wrote songs for them and other acts. When acts came along that were already self-contained, four or five guys or girls, who sang and also wrote their own songs. It completely changed the world. Not just their music was big, but they did movies and the concerts they did. People fell in love with their personalities. And that's when I believe it was Don Kirshner, a very famous producer, put together a group called The Monkees. The Monkees were not organic. Right. There were right. auditions for The Monkees. People who didn't make The Monkees are guys like Stephen Stills who auditioned and didn't get it. Now, he had an okay career. And, you know, Mike Nesmith, who was a monkey, actually was a brilliant songwriter. He wrote, you and I marched to the beat of a different drum, a big hit for Linda Ronstadt's first group, The Stone Ponies. I'm a fan of 60s music for people who didn't figure this out yet. So when the monkeys happened, it was a direct creation. It was what you're talking about. It's like, they didn't discover these people. You know, the British uh, Davy Jones, uh, was a theater actor. He was in the original oh. Oliver, uh, you know, the musical Oliver in London. Um, so these people were created. And then when they re became too demanding, Kirshner and those people created a fake group that didn't even exist called the Archies. And they had them sing songs. They were just studio musicians and cartoons. Because oh. that way you didn't have to worry about the... Uh, members of the group giving you grief. Um, so in that way, I understand what you're saying. There's a lot of cart horse questions. But then I look at someone like Keith Haring, okay, mm -hmm. who, for people who don't know, his art is very commercial. He uh, is like many of his generation who died way too young of AIDS. Um, and his stuff was everywhere for a while. And I don't know how much of that was people fell in love with him or how much of that was he was commercially, exactly. And is that, right. to bring it back to you, since you are my guest and I shouldn't talk the whole time, 
is that is that part of what you're talking about yeah that's part of what i'm talking about yeah it's kind of like creating the market and even to the point of creating like someone young coming out and already selling a painting for a million dollars their first painting out as opposed to yeah i mean this might have happened over the course of history other times but it was in the 80s when you're there it's just kind of in your face and you're 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 watching other people who aren't getting discovered and other people who are being created for the market or so it seems like yeah. what yeah it's a good question why are people like basquiat and herring still known and people like julian schnabel well, he was part of that. Julian Schnabel right. and David, David Sala, yeah, and all those people were the whole, yeah. But were, were they the monkeys of their time? <laughs> well, I mean, there's got to be lots mm. of other people who you saw who you thought were brilliant and they never caught fire. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough. About I don't know because, scene. no, I don't know enough about the scene. And well, I worked, the art dealers that I dealt with didn't work in modern or didn't work in contemporary art. So I was less knowledgeable about it. It was just what I saw happening around me. Yeah. And at some point you go from, I love this. Virginia, and then the thing is, is that oh. when I was actually, when I was at Penn, there was a, an exhibit at uh, Penn has a very, very good um, contemporary art museum in the art history, but what at least at that time was the art history building. And there was an art exhibit and then of all of a lot of these artists and they came and they spoke and you could go and listen to them speak. And a couple of them came to speak and you're sitting there going, this person doesn't even seem to understand why he's doing what he doesn't even seem to care about what he's doing, but he's making millions of dollars. So that was another thing that added to our questioning, you know, what was going on in the art world at that time sure i mean when i see things that are um when i look at some of my musical heroes from the 60s and i see them talk about why they got into music even before they could play it they talk about all their favorite you know blues musicians american rock musicians like the beatles were in love with buddy holly and and uh you know elvis and all that stuff and you know the rolling stones with you know lead belly and muddy waters and and they they understand the world from which they then drew and hoped to create themselves um so i, I can understand your apprehension i, I want to go into this trail uh that you leave on a map which is you go from virginia to florida to philadelphia to new york all for different reasons, but in mm -hmm. retrospect, it all makes sense. And then, because you're you're following, as Joseph Campbell would say, your bliss. I mean, the thing that attracts you in life, you know, you found psychology fascinating, you're doing that, then you get into art and you do that. I mean, if you love art and you're in America, you kind of have to find your way to New York City, don't you? I mean, yeah. and, and so then yeah. though, you have a political epiphany that mm -hmm. causes your next big move. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, up until that point, 
don't forget that I was kind of going places, but I was always leaving places. I would, I left places when I wasn't happy where I was, I left to go to the next place as well, looking for something else, even if that something else was not defined. But um, I find it interesting. Which is why very often, well, which is why I often kind of just like drop everything, pack my bags, and I just get on a plane and I go without any kind of preparation or or anything. So it's... But it's interesting. I feel like there's a little judgment on your part against yourself for that. Like somehow you're doing yeah. it. Like as yeah, a poet, yeah. I mean, for me, it's just in a weird way, there is a tradition of our heritage of a sense of like, it's time to go. And maybe for different reasons. True. But it's not like True. there's a ton of planning. It's like, True. where do we get a ticket? <laughs> this place. <True. laughs> so, and it's not like you were uh, some guy who was knocking up chicks in different cities and decided to leave. Like you, you know what I mean? Like, well, no. <laughs> not that irresponsible. <laughs> no, um, no, but in fact, my, my, there were always two things that drove me and I guess you can add psychology and art in there somewhere, but two things that always drove me were food and politics and the food hadn't quite arrived yet, even though I kind of did a little bit in New York with, um, I, I helped somebody develop a cookbook and test recipes for it and stuff. But, um, I, I basically had been watching politics from the periphery since I was a kid, actually. Um, my older brother was always very, very involved with politics. And so we always knew what was going on. And we listened to, you know, the news every night at, we listened to Walter Cronkite every night and 60 Minutes once a week and Life Magazine might have, you know, Life Magazine was a staple in our house. And dad worked for NASA. So of course it was a lot of, you know, railing against the money that our government was putting into NASA to send people into space when there were poor people who needed food. Um, my poor dad. Um, <laughs> but I, he just was very patient and let us go on and on and on about this. Um, so by the time I was leaving Penn, as I told you last time, I had a couple of ex the, the experiences of how politics impacted people around me, that's what I noticed, S kept moving in closer and closer and closer to me. And so the year I left Penn, um, two things happened. First of all, I noticed that the last year I was at Penn, tuition was $8,000 a year. Now it's like 58000 but back then 8000 <laughs> was already a lot of money. It was and back I then. Knew, yeah, and I knew that the following September, tuition was going up to 12000 a year. I also knew that the Republican government in power was cutting student assistance, cutting Pell Grants, cutting everything that helped me go to the school of my choice. Um, I also, uh, when I was at Penn, I volunteered at a shelter for battered women, for abused women. And I worked with, uh, they, they had a few, a few uh, most of us were volunteers, but there were a few uh, paid permanent employees, full-time employees there. And one of them was a certified school teacher. And I worked with her. We worked with the children because all of these women brought children from newborns to through high school age kids. And there were 20 to 30 kids at any, on any given day at that place with their moms. 
And so we ran a little red schoolhouse type system where we would keep a rhythm in, in these kids' days and try and help them keep up with their schoolwork. And as I got this job offer in New York and I finished school and I was going to leave, I found out that this shelter had lost their funding for the school teacher. And the school teacher couldn't stay without a salary. And she was leaving and they had nobody to replace this school teacher with and no funding. And then I went to New York and I, a, uh, a year in, I found a lump in my breast. Was this, I had already had one out when I lived, was in Florida and I was under my parents' insurance. And I went to your very famous hospital there with a breast clinic and the head of the department uh, did a biopsy and gave me my diagnosis, which was that I had to have this out immediately. Um, if not, I would die. And he said, but because you're uninsured, because I was making very, very little money and I was getting no benefits and I couldn't afford health insurance. Um, he said, because you have no health insurance, you, the hospital will not accept you for the surgery at the hospital. And he gave me the name of a private clinic that would do it as outpatient for $500 cash. And of course, well, in New York, after I paid my rent, $500 was what I had left over for the month for food and transportation and my utilities and everything else. And I thought, well, I will scrape together $500. I have no choice. I didn't want to ask my parents. And I lived in the apartment at that time upstairs for my older brother. And I knew that if I didn't have food till the end of the month, he would feed me. And I was leaving this doctor's office, going to the elevator to go home with all of this kind of running through my head. And there was a woman, a very tall, slim, I still have her vision in front of me. Every single day of my life, I see this woman, uh, a tall African-American woman who must have been 20 years older than me. So in her 40s, maybe 50s, um, crying at the elevator banks. And I went up to her and she grabbed my hand and she started to just kind of blurt out what she needed somebody to get this, to unload this on. And she had had the exact same diagnosis I had. And the doctor had told her exactly the same thing, but this woman did not have $500 to get the surgery done. She had no health insurance. The hospital was going to refuse her and she had no money to get it done privately. And she knew that she was sentenced to death, given a death sentence in the hospital. And people don't I, understand all, the whole Obamacare thing. Well, I, you know, at that time I felt very lucky suddenly from the, from the five minutes it took me to get from the doctor's office to the elevator bank and hear this woman's story. I thought, God, I'm privileged because I can figure out how to scrape together 500 bucks. This woman cannot. And after I had the surgery a couple weeks later, I thought this, I, I can't do this anymore. I, you know, I think I would have, I actually I said to myself, you either stay here and go into politics and change this, or you get up you, and you leave and go somewhere else that 
a, a country where people are taken care of, where a government understands that a healthier, edu uh, educated population is better for the society as a whole and won't abandon people on the side of the road. Um, and if I had had the personnel, if I had, like I said, I, you know, at that time in my life, I don't know how I picked up and moved to France, but I wasn't the person then that I am now. And I think if I was me then, I would have stayed and gone into politics, but I had no idea at that point how to do it. Um, so I quit my job and I gave notice on my apartment and I cashed in a $400 savings bond and I took two, I dumped, packed up my apartment in trash bags and put them on the sidewalk in front of my building and I took two suitcases and I left. Now, how much French did you speak? And I went to France point? because I oh. thought I spoke French. <laughs> <laughs> and what was revealed to you? <laughs> did you, you didn't speak French really? Well, you know, you go through, you know, five years in junior high and high school, and then you, you know, you, uh, French was my, you, to graduate from Penn at that time, you had to pass, you had to have, uh, pass a language test of the language of your choice. And you had to go through these whole batteries of tests to, to, to make sure you were fluent in that language, <laughs> air quotes. And, but when you get to a country like France and you, go to the market you realize you don't speak french <laughs> you can say de croissant s'il vous plaît <laughs> that's about it what's um, very funny to me is that you know my wife speaks french and that she took french in high school and college i think you know she went to berkeley but she told and she lived in france for a year but ultimately the way she learned to speak french was her first husband was polish and didn't speak English, but they had French in common. And he had two young sons. So for half the year, she was also raising teenage boys. So living with him and them, she really learned to speak French. Well, I, re my, I really learned to speak French because my first job, I two years later, I met a Frenchman and I got married and I looked for a job and I found a job in culinary tourism. Back then, I think the guy I was working for was the only person doing culinary tourism, very high-end culinary tourism. And it was just him and me as his assistant. And um, I'm sorry, you said it was just to, you and his assistant. Is that right? No, it was him and I was his assistant. So oh, it was just the it. two of us doing everything. Sorry. And right. um, he, he, um, you know, he said, are you, do you speak French? And I'm like, of course I speak French. <laughs> and I, <laughs> sorry, I don't need to laugh at you. It's funny. There's two, no, there's two things I had to do. First of all, I did the, the tourism part. So we would take people, you know, two to four people to into Michelin star chef kitchens for private cooking demonstrations and, and things like that. So we, that's what we did. And um, into, you know, the best uh, wine cellars in the city for private, wine tastings, champagne tastings, um, things like this. And I translated, I did English to French and French to English, but also he had created a, the a nine month intensive Anglophone program at a very well-known French cooking school in Paris 
that gives the French cooking diploma. And it was, he created this for non-French people, Anglophones, who wanted to come to France and specifically get the French cooking diploma. And, um, and he, he said, uh, he'd been doing it for four years and he said, well, I'm going to give you all the interpret, all the interpretation work to do. And I did for four years before we moved to Italy, I did six hours of pastry class every Monday. And then I did all the extra of the couple of wine classes, the couple of sausage making classes, the seafood and fish classes that were dotted through the years. But um, you learn how to speak French really, 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 really quickly when you're hired as an interpreter. <laughs> wow. I bought, I bought two little um, English-French cooking dictionaries, very thin volumes. And when I would get there, I would have one of the chef aprons um, and that had a big pocket in the front. So I would slide those two in <laughs> into the pocket. And every now and then I would, I would kind of turn around and I would pull one out discreetly and I would look up who <laughs> heard. That's fantastic. So that's how that's how I learned French very quickly, and then watching the news in French every night. Do you recommend that for people, not just for French, but for any language that they want to speak to watch the news in that language? Yeah, yeah. What I actually tell people who want their kids to learn English is to um, is to have them watch old movies, not cartoons because you need to see them the way the mouth moves. Oh. So you need a human speaking, but old movies, as opposed to new movies, old movies, people speak much more clearly. They don't speak quickly and they enunciate the words and they use very little slang. Wow. That's so it's a really very, it's a much pure language. So my kids, we did that. We raised them on old black and white movies. We watched, we raised them on, um, on 60s Disney movies, not the cartoons, <laughs> but the, like the Shaggy Dog. Right, but, right. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and the Marx Brothers, <laughs> things like that. The first, the first. The three, uh, well, you know, we, 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 we refused to have a TV, but when we moved to Italy and we put our sons at three and five into the Italian school system, they were in preschool, we were very afraid that they weren't getting a complete Italian language because we weren't speaking Italian at home because I was speaking English and their father was speaking French. And we were also at the same time kind of hoping, you know, wanted to make sure that their English and French was reinforced. So we bought a TV and we only wanted them to, to we would choose video sets for them to watch um, so we could choose what they watch. We didn't turn on cartoons. We didn't, they didn't watch any of that stuff. Uh, in fact, we didn't have the TV connection. You had to pay for the connection for TV and we didn't have it for a couple of years. But um, my husband went out and he bought uh, the Don Giovanni opera. Mozart's he Don bought Giovanni? Don Giovanni with the Lole version. He bought um, Truffaut's uh, L'Enfant Sauvage. Uh, about the the story about the boy who was found in uh, in Aveyron in France, living he had been raised by wolves until mm -hmm. he was about seven. Right, it literally means the savage child, right? Right, sure. and he bought a movie in Hindi. Hindi, the Indian language. 
Yes, a black and white tragic drama movie called the Salon de Musique, the Music Room, I think. Wow. And those kids watch those three movies over and over and over again until they, I mean, the Hindi movie, obviously, they didn't know the line, but they could sing Don Giovanni from beginning to end. So, and then we started buying them other things like Peter Rabbit in Italian and and Marx wow. Brothers movies and things like that. But yeah, so. How did you sorry, meet your husband? No, that's fine. I find that fascinating. I mean, <laughs> How did you meet your husband? You go to France, you sort of fall into doing your work, but... No, for the first two years, I would stay in Paris until my money ran out, which is about two months, three months. Then I would fly back. The first time I flew back to New York and I moved in with my aunt and uncle and I did research. One of my former bosses was writing an art history book and I did research for her. Flew back to France and then the next two or three my father got sick at that time so I would stay in France until my money ran down to a one-way ticket back and I would fly to Florida I would temp for two two months and help with my dad and then fly back to France and then two months later when I was down to 1400 francs which was what it cost to fly back to Florida I would fly back I would temp for a couple months help with my dad and then come back and then after two years I met uh, I met Jean-Pierre, yeah, because he was living in a big communal house where they're in the suburbs where there were about 10, 10, 12 people at any given time who rotated out constantly. But an American friend of mine had moved in with her boyfriend who lived in that house. And so your, I hus- him. your husband's name is Jean-Pierre. Could you not find a more French man to fall in love with? Jean-Pierre, because that's awesome. I just... I just asked him the question, actually, why Jean? Because 90% of the men in this country are named either Jean-Pierre, Jean-Paul, Jean-Francois, Jean-Marc, Jean, uh, I mean, it's, I don't know, it just is, <laughs> makes me crazy. <laughs> but yeah, but um, then I, we kind of found each other in the same place every day for like four or five months, but never spoke to each other. And then, oh, this is, I'm not going to tell this story. No, I didn't think he was, no, I didn't think he was interested in me. So I met somebody else who was a uh, journalist, American French journalist based in, on mission in Nigeria. So I went down to Nigeria to stay with him. And then realized, um, no, actually, two weeks before I was supposed to fly down, I already had my ticket. He realized I was leaving the country and told me to stay, that he loved me. Mm. And that was that. And I'd like almost never spoken to him before, ever. And I said, well, I've got to go. And I left. And then I said, okay, I'm coming back. And I came back. And then I stayed with him for a little bit. And then I went back to Nigeria. And then I went back to Paris. And then I went back to Florida to stay with my dad for a couple of months because he passed away shortly afterwards. And that's when we decided to get married. So I flew back and we got married and I was, I don't plan, we don't plan. I'm not a planner. I'm not an organizer. How long have you been married to Jean-Pierre? Oh, 105 years. (laughs) Um, So it's been a while. It's It's been a long time. We have, yeah, two grown sons. So yeah. 
I, I have to tell you, I, I love the pictures I've seen of your new granddaughter. Is this your first grandchild? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you clearly are over the moon, and rightfully so. Congratulations. She's, she's perfect. She's beautiful. She's, yeah. And you've actually gotten to see her in person now. Last, yeah, a week ago, a week ago, two weeks ago. Yeah, they came for five days. The very definition of kvelling, for those of you who speak Yiddish, and nachas, <laughs> not French words, but still very much in your vocabulary. Um, that's fantastic. And um, you're one of those cool, sophisticated grandmas. Do you, uh, has it changed you being a grandma? Well, you know, my husband just asked me if I'm used to, if I feel like a grandma now, if I'm used to it. And I'm like, no, because, I, you know, we just have really gotten to know my son's girlfriend, Olivia, over the past couple of years. We've only seen them. They don't live in the same country as us, so we don't see them very often. I've gotten to know, I've met her mother and sister and it's just kind of very surreal. All of a sudden, these people that you didn't know existed two years ago or three years ago are all of a sudden family. And they're Belgian, and right? Very, and they're Belgian. Well, she's half Belgian, half her father's French. So Belgian, so, by the way, totally strange. <laughs> That's my judgment. Belgium, where they speak 25 languages. And they met in Senegal. So... Yeah. My, my wife's stepson married a woman from Senegal. There you go. I'm telling you, later. this is unbelievable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is wild. Um, uh, I wanna... So all of this is just very surreal. I'm the kind of person that I have a very hard time you know, even with a piece of art in front. I mean, it's, I have a very hard time with things that to me are very surreal. I kind of, I can't concentrate on, on them too much or I get dizzy. I have what my husband calls cosmic vertigo. If I think too hard about, you know, the whole concept of something like a granddaughter or a new family or a piece of art or a, or a, it's just, I get dizzy. I just can't do it. But it's so, it served you so well from my point of view as I look at you and your life, which one could argue is a work of art, that it is, no, just hear me out. Some yeah, artists, okay. some artists take years to sketch and plan. They approach the canvas and it is done before it's actually done. Others have a uh, frantic inspiration. And while it still may be edited, they bring an exuberance to that moment and a sense of adventure. I'm not painting you as some wild bohemian hippie because I don't think you are, but you could make the argument in retrospect that a character who took the actions that you took and had the reactions to various input that you had it's kind of a bohemian hippie, but um, with this very staid appearance. You know, as I speak to you, you're not frantic. Staid? Do, st do I have a staid appearance? I better have to do something about that. <laughs> well, you're very thoughtful. 
you, you are not you are not frantic as i said by the way before i forget i find your earrings to be elegant but you, you folks can't see but they are um multicolored i guess they're crystal um and they hang they're almost chandelier like all those single strand um various shapes they look like uh, several are emerald cut i can't tell the other cut of the um well here's the thing when i you know going online during confinement <laughs> all the women were talking about oh my god i don't have to put a bra on anymore i haven't put on makeup for three months i haven't cut you know i'm i get up i got every morning every single morning lipstick and big earrings <laughs> and you just feel good about yourself <laughs> That's what you can wear. I wore the exact same sweatsuit, like yoga pants and t-shirt and a sweatshirt every single day through confinement, but earrings and lipstick. I admire that. My wife is an earrings and lipstick <laughs> woman. We have been, I've been wearing nicer shirts and shorts, but still shirts and shorts. When I have to do a court appearance on Zoom, I look like I'm wearing a suit, so I have a jacket and tie. Uh, they don't know I'm wearing shorts and I'm barefoot uh, as I, you know, talk to the court. But it's been strange. We are all having a very strange experience. Um, I am going to be running out of time soon, so I want to make sure that I still talk about your lovely hotel. Um, I'm so excited. Holly and I, as soon as we know we can do this, our plan is in April or May to be in France to visit the stepkids who live just outside of Paris, and then to rent a car and come to your town. Um, and the hotel is beautiful. I've seen pictures of it. The town is beautiful. And um, uh, your food looks beautiful. I wanted, because I knew about this and people won't necessarily know about this, you are an expert jam maker. I'm just gonna give you that, whether you take it or not. I'll take it. Good, <laughs> I haven't tasted a single drop I of it. I make so much of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it looks amazing, and the kind of jam that you make, I know why. Please tell my listeners why you became a jam maker. Not, yeah, well, I we decided to buy a hotel, which is a whole nother podcast, <laughs> why we ended up buying a hotel. Um, but we've both been through several moves and several career changes, and just because, and... Um, so we we found well we found this hotel and we came to visit it and we visited a few times and then we put in a bid and we are the fourth owners of the hotel the hotel was created in the 60s and i was lucky enough to get to know one of the first owners because she lived down the street she passed away a couple of years ago but i got to know her um and it's from the first owner in the 60s the jam has always been made on the premises that served at breakfast. And it became a tradition of the hotel with local fruit. And so it became kind of a condition on the sale uh, of the hotel to us that we would continue the tradition. And because I'm a food writer and a cookbook author and a food writer, um, they all turned to me and I said, me? Oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And I'd never made jam before. And we did a two-week training period uh, where we moved into the hotel before the former owners moved out. And we learned all about the hotel and followed them through their days. And in the afternoon, 
I watched the former owner make jam and I took copious notes and then they left and I was on my own and I made jam and I have to make a lot of jam for our clients. So I How many people it. stay at the hotel, by the way? I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We have 27 rooms and in high season, the hotel holds up to 53 people. Wow. So on an average, we have a lot, except for COVID year, uh, we have the year of the plague. We oh. have a very long high season from April through the end of October. And we have anywhere from, well, April, May can be 35 to 45 people, uh, high season, anywhere from 40 to 53 people every night at the hotel. So how much jam are you making on a daily basis? Daily, I can't tell because it's, it depends. I mean, there are weeks where I'm making one or two batches a day, every day. And then there are weeks where I don't because I'm in between, because it's seasonal fruit. So, gotcha. um, but I make between a thousand and 1300 jars a year. And if you know Bun Memo, I fill up Bun Memo jar, Bun Memo jam jars. Yeah. Those are the, she will bring me that, bring their empty jars. Yeah. Are those the ones that are the clear jars with a red and white screw top? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a decent amount of jam. And I've seen pictures because on Twitter you post uh, stuff. I've seen fig jam, which had never occurred to me would be a thing. But as you told me before, oh. it's not just you make fig jam. You could make no. 10 different kinds because you add different spices and herbs and right. I invent new jams every time I make a batch. Well, I think that's so I add flavor. Amazing. So I've become a, which is the premise of my um, future jam cookbook, which I'm working on. And just so people know, uh, if they don't, if they don't know you, um, I want them to follow you, Jamie, on Twitter. Your handle is life's a feast. L-I-F-E-S-A-F-E-A-S-T, which is such a cool handle. So much better than my very through the law. Yours is so romantic. Actually, Life's a Feast is my blog, which I I don't add to very often, but yeah, it's my blog, Life's a Feast. So I started the original Life's a Feast blog in 2008. And when I joined Twitter, that was my handle. It's my Instagram handle as well. That's good information. Uh, you also have a book that was published. Mm -hmm. um, can you share with us about your orange book? Yes, my cookbook is called <laughs> Orange Appeal. Um, I that is I, so punful, but it's great. <laughs> orange Appeal. Yeah. I won't embarrass myself by telling you that it took me three months to figure out the pun because I had. <laughs> I had a working title, which I thought was kind of sexy. Um, and it was only after that it went through, uh, you know, my pu the publisher picked it up. It's Gibbs Smith Publishing. And, um, and then the whole, you know, did the whole manuscript. And it was only at the end of the whole process, which from beginning to end is like two years, that they gave me the title of the book. I mean, I knew that my working title probably wouldn't pass, but... And it was only when people started saying, that's so funny. That's so cute. That's so funny. That's so cute. I'm like, what are they talking about? And then suddenly it dawned on me. Um, You're an Ivy League graduate, I want to point oh out, and God. a smart person, and you literally traveled all over the world. 
But that I is, guess it's just a different sense of humor <laughs> than the one I have. <laughs> but because my actually, I signed with my with my with my um, agent because when we bought the hotel, because I want to write a, a memoir about the hotel, which is something else. Um, but and so she knew that I wouldn't write it until I was, you know, had been th here several years. So she said, why don't we just get a cookbook out or something else out so your name is out there and published. And because I grew up on the Florida Space Coast on the Indian River, which is world famous for its citrus, I realized, and citrus was popular back when I did the book proposal as a cookbook topic, but nobody had written a cookbook only on oranges. And I love oranges and they're crazy diverse. And, mm. and so I did this book, which has 70 savory and sweet recipes in it. And um, it's published and the recipes are fantastic. They're fantastic because not only are they great and they're great recipes, but because I had like 15 recipe testers working with me on this. So they all, the recipes work, I which I'm very proud be, of. I wouldn't be the person who tried it at home, but I'd definitely be the person who tasted it. Because <laughs> the cover is well, very attractive. Yeah. Oh, well, a shout out to my photographer, Ilva Beretta, who's lives in Italy, his Swede who lives in Italy. So of course. <clears throat> and, um, oh yeah, her photos are fantastic. Yeah. So you, you still have that agent? Who is that? Martha Hopkins. Yes. That's Same fantastic. agent. And she's got my proposal for my jam cookbook right now. That's fantastic. I, yes. I gotta think that that's an easy sell. <laughs> I, I think that, Let's hope so. You know, you never know. Um, probably if Orange Appeal had sold 10 million, you know, 10,000 copies, it would be an easier sell a second cookbook, but everyone buy five copies of my cookbook. please. <laughs> yes, they make fantastic please. gifts. That's why let's have you on your book here. If you follow uh, me, actually, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll discover that there are certain people who interact with me who are cooking all of the recipes in orange appeal. So they're constantly posting photos of them. So you get a kind of taste um, of what the recipes offer. I, I'm thrilled that we were able to talk again and that I actually recorded it this time. I <laughs> feel like, again, we, we went over some things we talked about before. We talked about some new things, but I, I know that it's gonna be very difficult for you to have me as a guest because we're going to sit and talk and I'm going to keep you from getting things done. I don't know how we're going to negotiate it. We'll have to figure it out. I'm so I, I'm running out of time. Obviously, is there anything that you just had to talk about that we didn't get to talk about or you had any questions or concerns or anything you wanted to share? I'm, I'm sure there were lots of things I wanted to talk about with you. Um, no, I mean, I, off the top of my head, I can't think about it. No, once COVID is all done, we'll get on again and we'll talk about saving, how to save business, how we saved our business during COVID. Yeah, that's a great. Just another story. What you need is to have several of us on that we can all share our stories because this has been some heck of a year. I have to tell for you. For a lot of a, people. Yeah, as an attorney, um, I certainly didn't expect it to be this way. I've been incredibly busy. Some of what I've been doing is when people lost their jobs, I've reviewed contracts from separation of jobs. And then some mm -hmm. people got some offers, so I reviewed those. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of criminal stuff that's kept me busy too. So I, 
and I'm able to do things via Zoom, like this phone call. Uh, but, you know, I have so much compassion for people. One of the reasons why my wife and I are still doing a lot of takeout is quite honestly, we want to keep our local places alive. Where we live, it's not so much chains, but a lot of great mom and pop type places. Mm -hmm. Our fave, one of our, one of the lunch places we go to a few times a week just closed. So that's the first local shuttering of a business due to COVID. And we think there might be a couple more, but um, I, I, once I, I, you know, I've had, a, I've had no writing mojo for the past year. I've been trying to, to put together a few articles and I really, really want to talk about the fact that when something like a small independent hotel or a restaurant closes, and we read about this in the press a lot, the impact is a lot greater and a lot more serious than not only people realize, but that's being focused, that's being discussed in articles written about this. Um, it's not just the restaurant and their employees, it's uh, it's it, it's ripples, it waves because no business stands alone. It's it's an interwoven web of of other businesses and other services, and it's it's very important to understand that when so in France when they say twenty five percent of hotels and restaurants in the country have already closed permanently, there are cities I've heard I have friends and a friend in Detroit and another in Portland who said forty percent of the restaurants have closed permanently. It's not just these businesses and it's not just the neighborhoods that are losing their businesses, but it's a whole wave of other businesses that are intertwined invisibly, except to the owners of businesses that are that are interwoven with these businesses that are really, really impacted. And if someone out there would like to work with me on finishing this article and publishing it. I think it's an incredibly important topic because I understand in a little town like ours, how one restaurant or, you know, two or three restaurants close or one hotel closes, how many other businesses and services and artisans it impacts. I promise I'll have you back to talk about it because I can just imagine at first blush without being an expert in your field, everybody from if you have linens laundered if you you know your suppliers mm -hmm. of various food items you know purchasing exactly. glassware printing i just can't even imagine so we i definitely want to have, have you back on to talk about that that's a whole aspect of you that we didn't get to discover mm -hmm. you are multifaceted i knew it wasn't an accident that we've been friends for however long it's been it seems like forever which is good and clearly we're related. You're going to have to do the genetic research and we'll figure it out. Until then, I look forward to seeing you in April. Jamie, thank you so yes. much for being on Is That Really Legal? It was thank you so much for having me. I loved having the time to talk to you and get to know you like this, but it's really an honor for me to be here on, on your podcast, on your legal podcast. Fantastic, Jamie Schler. Um, if you want more information about her, go to her Twitter handle, actually, 
which is at Lights a Feast, all one word. And uh, if you want any information about this podcast or Abe's Muffins, go to isthatreallylegal.com. You can leave us a message. Please take care of yourself. This thing is still going on. And uh, more than taking care of yourself, take care of your neighbor. Take care of your friends. Take care of people you don't even know because we all matter. And uh, don't forget to vote. You gotta vote. If you're here in New York, uh, there are absentee ballots you can do by mail. You can stand in line with me. I'm gonna ma- I'm gonna vote. I'm gonna attend. Uh, I'm volunteering as a lawyer. Uh, we're gonna see. Hopefully, they won't need me, but I'll be there. Be counted. It's time. We're done with this nonsense. All right. Have <laughs> a great one. Is that really legal? Dot com. And uh, take care of yourself, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>